Welcome, everyone, to the third episode of Englishman in New York. I'm Nick Cook, co-founder of The Goat Agency, and I'm here with my esteemed co-host, William the Hamburglar Hamnet. That's very kind of you to... I don't think everyone has ever said that I'm esteemed in any way, shape or form, so thanks, You aren't, compared to our guest this week, but I'm not a normal human, maybe you are. That's very true. Thank you very much. Um, I'm I'm good. It's been been a fun week, actually. New York started to open up a bit. I was able for the first time in a long time to actually go and meet someone for a pint at a distance. Upsettingly, it wasn't you. And it was lovely to sit in the sunshine and um, at a socially safe distance, I must add. And I did have a mask on. But yeah, to finally be able to interact with um, some other human beings than those in my immediate circle, it, it, it's been really nice. But anyway, yeah, it, it, it's, it's been an interesting week. It's been a fascinating pod. Um, we've just hopped off from speaking with Josh Littlejohn, MBE. Um, fascinating guy. He has done some incredible things in his life. Um, he's, a, he's a very young man, so he's been extremely busy. But everything from um, launching cafes to running global events like the World's Big Sleep Out that have raised over $10 million for charity in one single sleeping. I was about to say sitting, but sleeping really. Um, and the podcast was hilarious um, insofar as at one point, he was joined by two birds in his kitchen. I, I hope Tom, the editor, has left that footage in. We'll soon find out. But yeah, I was amazed. I mean, you say he's out cafes. These were cafes uh, predominantly run by members of the homeless community. Uh, and his cafe in Edinburgh was visited by the likes of George Clooney, Leo DiCaprio, Harry and Meghan. Um, so it kind of felt me, it made me feel a little um, inadequate, like I'm not doing enough. Uh, good especially at a time like this Um, but no he was a fascinating guest um, and we could have talked for hours really but uh, without further ado let's jump into it i'm serious move to a new city we're moving to new york i should probably buy a place in the city first you're here for business or pleasure hopefully both welcome back to the podcast and a very special guest uh, this week. We have Mr. Josh Littlejohn, MBE, our first MBE on the pod. How are you, Josh? I'm very well, thank you. Thank- thanks for having me. Yeah, good to have you on the pod. And normally we start um, by looking at things chronologically. So I know that based on coronavirus, you are actually back where your journey began. Tell us a bit about where you are. Yeah, I'm back in um, a city called Stirling um, at my old family home where I grew up. Um, So yeah, I've I've been here for the last 10 weeks or so during the whole lockdown period. Uh, Normally I live in a a fairly small flat in Edinburgh. Um, So yeah, it's nice to have a place with a bit more space and a garden um, for for this kind of crazy time. Yeah, I can imagine. And who, uh, your whole family there? What's the what's the situation? Has it been a bearable lockdown for you? Yeah, in a way, I've quite enjoyed it. I've enjoyed the kind of change of pace. Um, and, you know, it's just a, a very, very different from how things were uh, prior to it. But yeah, I've enjoyed it, particularly now the sun's coming out. I'm here just with my brother, my little brother, who's three and a half years my junior, and my girlfriend, Suki. Um, we are all locking out down together. My mum, who would normally be here, is with her partner in Yorkshire. Um, so it's just been the three of us for the last 10 weeks. Super jealous. There's, um, Yeah, sounds really idyllic. I'd, I'd much rather be in Scotland than New York right now, which isn't something I don't think 
I would normally say. But um, yeah, super jealous. <laughs> normally of the space it's the other way around, yeah. <laughs> exactly. But um, yeah, Josh, we, you've got an amazing story and um, have had an uh, amazing life to date. Um, and it would be fantastic just to, to, if you could kind of take us through your, your childhood growing up in Scotland as a starting point. Um, and yeah, before we get onto the super interesting philanthropic stuff that has kind of littered your life post university. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I suppose that my childhood in a way kind of planted some seeds for what I would end up going on to do um, in, in the sense that in, in many ways I had a really, really idyllic childhood. Um, as I say, we grew up here in the countryside in Stirling. My dad was in the restaurant business, um, so he kind of set up his own restaurant. He didn't start out with any money at all, um, but him and my mum set up their own restaurant in Stirling um, called Little John's. And it, it basically took off, this was in the 80s, uh, just right before I was born. Um, and it took off and they opened a little chain um, and, and they did really well. Um, so me and my little brother grew up in, you know, what I would consider to be relative privilege. Um, and we were kind of showered in love and got all the support we could ever really uh, hope or ask for. Um, and yeah, I went to school at a school called McLaren High School, which was a kind of a state school. Um, so... I suppose, relatively speaking, in the school, like we were definitely one of the most affluent families, and I used to find that completely mortifying. Um, I, I used to be really, really embarrassed about, um, you know, appearing more wealthy than anyone else. So, um, I, I'd always sought to kind of distance myself from any sense of wealth, you know. So certainly, when I came to start to think about my career or what I might want to do in life. There was never any objective for me to try and make lots of money because it was always something I wanted to be far away from and not be associated with. So, um, yeah, I, kinda, I suppose a few seeds were planted for, for what I would go on to, to pursue um, for, from having a really lucky childhood, really. A lot of our guests have been um, entrepreneurs. And the obvious question is, you know, at that young age, were you business minded and were you entrepreneurial? I guess for you, you've sort of explained already that feeling of almost embarrassment or guilt from having potentially more than other people. Um, even at that young age, were you doing good deeds and were you, you know, trying to help other people and thinking philanthropically um, or did that come a bit later? Um, it's, I think when I got into my teenage years, like 13, 14, um, the, my sort of teenage rebellion kind of translated to a really sort of idealistic worldview and we actually used to give my dad me and my brother used to give my dad a really hard time we used to sort of say oh dad you know you're a disgrace you've got way more than we need you shouldn't be driving a fancy car and you know you should be giving all your money away to uh, Africa and you know we used to give him a really really hard time and I think he didn't quite understand what had hit him because he'd only worked really hard his whole life um, to try and provide every opportunity for me and my brother and when we became kind of teenagers it really sort of got thrown in his face a lot and um, so it was kind of it's translated to a sense of like a, a real awareness of injustice and kind of being uh, you know feeling yeah that's a sense of um the, the guilt in a way that we had more than enough um, and yeah that's that's you know translated into a sense of political uh, activism i remember uh, again when I was probably a teenager uh, we went on the Make Poverty History March and 
my brother actually won tickets to the Live 8 concert and we went to see that. So we started to become more politically engaged. Um, when I was 17, just before I went to university, um, I went and did a volunteer project in Ecuador for three months um, where I went and uh, did this kind of project working with street children. Um, so, yeah, like I, I, I developed a real sense of... Um, wanting to try and make a difference in the world and that really became a firm ambition of mine um, and I went to uni and studied uh, politics and economics with a view to try and come out of the other side of it uh, and make a difference in some way um, but oh, I suppose over the course of university that sense of idealism and motivation really kind of dissipated um, and you know as with most people in university you start to make new friends and get, def I definitely got really heavily involved in drinking culture and became very lethargic and you know was out most nights of the week so I think by the time I actually emerged from university um, I'd lost that a, a lot of the idealism that I went in with um, yeah yeah which is really interesting because um, my experience, I, I also did politics at university um, in, in the Midlands. I, I came from a kind of small town upbringing in Dorset. So I guess a similar situation to, to somewhere like Stirling. Um, and university was a thing that really kicked my political activism on. I'm not saying I didn't touch a drop of alcohol whilst I was there and there wasn't a hell of a lot of lethargy like you're describing. But normally it, it, it kind of is the crescendo moment for people and their political activism and their idealism. So it's interesting that you kind of, that was in your, your younger childhood and your teenage years, but then waned a lot during uni. I mean, it, yeah, was the lure of things like... Um, you know, debating society stuff and young labour clubs and things like that. Was it was it just not interesting? Was, it started off, yeah, it started, like, I think I joined, a, like, a, a society called People and Planet um, in first year, and I volunteered once a week in Oxfam. So I started off with the best of intentions. Um, <laughs> and that, But then I kind of found People and Planet was slightly wacky and they were, like, coming up with really extreme ideas which were like you know as idealistic as i was they were like we need to abolish money completely from all society and kind of go back to barter sort of idea and i was like <laughs> oh, this is maybe a bit much for me Wild. Uh, uh, you know so i just and then over the course of it almost as that sense of political idealism and engagement it basically effectively went into hibernation as did a kind of a much of my sense of get up and go, to be honest, as I say, you know, I had a, don't get me wrong, I had a great time and I've made some lifelong friends, you know, and I don't regret any of my time at university, but I, yeah, I definitely feel many of the elements, you know, within me went into hibernation and only kind of got woken up again um, a, a after that period. Yeah, when did, um, I guess, when did you wake up from that, um, that big, big sleep I guess from a yeah charitable and philanthropic um yeah desire um or, or malaise at that point when did you wake up and and I guess decide that you wanted to forge a path um in that way in your life well I mean to be honest like even take out the philanthropic side of it um even any sense of like you know entrepreneurialism uh, kind of this wasn't really present during university, um, and w when I was coming in, you know, to, out of my fourth year, I decided that my aspiration was to go and get a job working for the government as basically a civil servant. So um, I 
had a dream of maybe becoming a development economist and working for the Department for International Development and maybe advising developing countries on policies for growth and, and that kind of thing. So, I, you know, I wanted to try and have a meaningful life and a meaningful career and that I felt that was the road for me. So I applied for a job um, through the graduate scheme kind of process and it was a really intensive, very long six-month job application process and you had to go online and do all these psychometric tests and you had to go and do all, go back and forth to London and do these assessment centres. And the second last uh, phase was sort of an assessment centre day in London um, where they kind of tested your knowledge of economics and it was very technical. Um, and I remember I really wanted this job and I read a big textbook that they recommended back to front um, and I passed that stage. And then I got through to the final stage, which was another day assessment thing in London, where they more t- it was more testing your personality traits and your interpersonal skills and leadership skills and that kind of thing. And they'd put you through these series of exercises. And after that six-month process, I just got a single-sentence email saying, um, we're very sorry, you've not been successful, you didn't get the job. So I felt, <laughs> oh, no. yeah, I was a bit kind of deflated and felt, oh, I really don't want to have to go through any more of these graduate scheme interview processes and jump through all these hoops. Um, and obviously I'd you know, grown up and watched my dad take more of an entrepreneurial route. So it was at that point I thought, you know, maybe I might just try and set up my own business. Um, and at the time, you know, I did, I'd never heard of any social enterprise type business model so it was very much a traditional business I was thinking um, to try and make a profit you know the the culture at the time was very much Dragon's Den and The Apprentice and um, you know so I decided to set up an events company um, called Cap and I called it Capital Events and um, started to organize little events and as soon as I started on to, to do that and and started going down that more entre, entrepreneurial route, you know, a real a light bulb switched on in me and I felt that sense of awakening um, and I suddenly was springing out of bed early in the morning uh, ready to attack the day. Um, so, yeah, that was kind of the, a key moment for me where it kind of uh, I felt uh, that that kind of came back to life. And is that where the idea for Social Bite started um, after that business uh, and what kind of happened with that business? Did it was it a success, um, or did it fail, and then that lead you to set up the coffee shop? What was that process like? Yeah, I mean, I mean, Josh, your email address. I've always wondered why the um, the alias was um, Capital Events uh, on the end, and and now I know. Well, that's just pure laziness in the sense that, like, I just have you know, once you've got an email address and you, that's the one people know to correspond you with. I, f- I just feel like. Um, it'd be a hassle to change the domain, so I it's really like a phone sh- number. Yeah, you can't change so a phone I just number. just kind of stuck with that, um, despite the fact that Lena, you know, that's not really the organisation that uh, I run anymore. But yeah, I've, like basically, like the events business went on for um, uh, several years, um, and it, yeah, it was really sort of a, a learning curve in entrepreneurship and sales, and taught me so much. Um, the first event that I ever dreamt up um, was a fashion show uh, that I put on, I think this was in 2008 from memory, um, that I put on during the Edinburgh Festival that I called the Festival Fashion Show. Um, and I booked this like nightclub uh, kind of venue um, on George Street in Edinburgh. 
Um, and I remember I was 21 at the time and I was single. Um, so I thought a fashion show could be a really good way to try and um, meet and try and find myself a nice girlfriend. Um, so I would literally be walking down the street and if I saw an attractive girl, I'd kind of stop her and say, um, you know, I'm really sorry to interrupt you, but my name is Josh and I'm the organizer of the festival fashion show. Um, you know, have you ever, ever considered modeling by chance? Um, so, you know, put together uh, a team of models and then I wrote off to lots of high street retailers um, and asked if they could give us uh, clothes for the different rounds and so on and so forth. And then went out and handed out flyers and sold tickets. Um, so it ended up being like a really brilliant night. Um, you know, and I think I made about £3,000 for myself. And I just thought, wow, this is absolutely amazing. This entrepreneurship thing is such a buzz. Um, and from you know that point, I was completely and utterly uh, caught the bug, really. Um, and I started to put on more ambitious events. Um, so the next things I started to do was exhibitions. Um, so I did a big uh, gift exhibition just before Christmas, which that I called Scotland's Christmas Fair. Um, and I sold stands to gift companies. And then I did a snow sports exhibition which was called Scotland's Ski and Snowboard Show um, and I kind of realized that if you put the word Scotland's in front of something it sounds quite big and official and people seem to buy into that and um, so I, I, I came up with this event called the Scottish Business Awards um, which was probably definitely by far the most important event that I created and went ran on for um, five years. Um, and it was through that event that we started to invite these really high-profile people to Scotland um, to come and be the keynote speakers. Um, so the first uh, Scottish Business Awards event took place in February 2012. Um, and we had uh, Sir Bob Geldof came and speak, and we ended up with 800 people um, could come and attend that event. Um, and we grew it. After that, we had, it sounds mad, but we got uh, President Bill Clinton to come to Scotland and, and be the speaker. So we were basically like building up this events business. And it was, as I say, I was absolutely loved the entrepreneurial element, um, you know, and I was really enjoying it. But throughout that period of four, four years or so I was doing it, I did feel a bit of an emptiness that it, it wasn't in any way pursuing that sense of idealistic identity that I felt so strongly when I was when I was younger and I really envisaged my life going down that path of trying to make a difference. So as much as I, I was loving the entrepreneurial element, I felt I was yearning to try and, you know, do something with more meaning. Um, so yeah, that, you know, that kind of started the process of, of thinking about going down a more social path and that ultimately led us to opening up the, the Social Bite uh, Cafe. It's, it's amazing. As, that, oh, sorry, Nick, again. This is the perils, Nick, of this We need to get better at this, don't we? We've well, we don't need to get better. Thing. We need the pandemic to end so we're all in one room <laughs> so we can actually see each other. Um, the oddest time to launch a podcast. Nick, you go. I'll, 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 I'll yield this time. I was just going to say this. There's a real theme throughout your stories we're going to hear of your ability to lure real tier one celebrity talent to your events or your cafe or whatever else you're doing. Um, how did you become so good at that and how on earth did you get Bill Clinton to come to the Scottish Business Awards? Exactly my question, Nick. Oh, there we go. <laughs> uh, well, basically, um, so, yeah, I dreamed up this event I decided to call it the Scottish Business Awards. But again, because it was called the Scottish Business Awards, everybody sort of assumed it was very prestigious and it had been around for a long time. 
um, even though it was obviously brand new and run by a guy in his uh, early 20s who was basically just effectively chancing it. Um, and we, but the first year we put on a really great night and, you know, we had some real top business people in Scotland there. Um, and a lot of them sent me a nice email saying, you know, great night, well done and, and so on and so forth. Um, and during that first year of it, um, as I say, there was 800 people there and I thought it might be a good opportunity to, to raise some money. So we put on a charity auction um, on the night and I started to write off to people to see if we could get prizes. So I probably wrote to Andy Murray and asked for a tennis lesson and wrote to Formula One drivers and asked for a track day and, you know, that kind of thing. Big cool fans. Yeah, exactly. Um, and for some reason, I, I, to be honest, don't know where, that, where it stemmed from, the, the idea, but I thought perhaps... Um, I, I could write off to um, Bill Clinton and see if we can maybe get a meeting with Bill Clinton or something like that that we could auction off. So it was a bit of a random idea, but um, I didn't have any connections with Bill Clinton at all. So I literally went on Google and typed in Bill Clinton. Um, it came up with the Clinton Foundation. So I clicked onto that and clicked on the contact page to see if I could get an email address or something. And it was one of those pages where there wasn't even a phone number or an email address, it was just like a contact box. So you kind of think that you've got almost no chance of anyone even, uh, you know, reading it probably. Exactly. But anyway, typed in, you know, we're doing this event, the Scottish Business Awards, blah, 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 and said, what would be the chances of getting a meeting with Bill Clinton that we could auction off? Um, and to my surprise, a couple of days later, I got an email back from somebody at the Clinton Foundation, basically asking some questions about the event and the demographic of people and so on and so forth. And... Basically, what she ended up saying was, look, what we could offer you isn't a meeting with Bill Clinton, but a spend the day with Bill Clinton in New York prize. And I was like, okay. And then they said, um, but, but basically, you would have to raise a minimum of £60,000 or maybe $60,000, and you have to split half of it with the Clinton Foundation. That sounds like a good deal to me. Yeah, you know, I thought, well, you know, we'd never organised this event before. I had no idea whether that was realistic or not, but I kind of felt, you know, it's worth a try. So we uh, took the prize and it, we it got to the auction and it was the final kind of crescendo star prize of the night. And the guy, the auctioneer said, this has a minimum reserve of £60,000. Um, we have to hit that or we can't sell it. Um, so he basically was taking bids and it went to five grand to 10 grand um, eventually got to 30,000 pounds. And it was a guy at the back of the room who was a bit of an oil tycoon in Scotland. And he was at 30 grand and no one else was bidding. And the auctioneer said, look, it has to get to 60 or I can't sell it. So basically this guy, it turns out he was fairly drunk. Um, he just bid up on himself. So he personally bid up for 35, 40, all the way up to 60 and sold it. Um, so, Anyway, so that was that. So we were able to go back to the Clinton Foundation and say, 60 grand, there's your 30. Thanks very much. See you later. Um, and then the following year came and we were thinking about doing the event again and we thought we could, you know, who, who could we approach to be a speaker? And I thought, do you know what? I'll get back in touch with that lady at the Clinton Foundation. My mate, Bill. <laughs> yeah. um, so I dropped her an email and said, look, what would it actually take to bring Bill Clinton over to be the speaker at this event? And she said, well, look, you know, realistically, you're looking at a really massive donation to the Clinton Foundation for him to consider that. Um, so I was kind of like, well, you know, what sort of numbers are we talking? 
Um, so it was kind of bounced back and forth. And I th from memory, she came up with a donation figure of $210,000, I believe, um, to the Clinton Foundation. And if we could make that donation, then he would come and be the keynote speaker. So, you know, again, it, I was kind of like, we didn't really have any money in the bank. Um, I had no idea. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, but I sort of did a bit of maths and figured, well, maybe if we could sell so many tables with Clinton's name attached, you know, for a certain price, we could just about cover that. So um, effectively took a, took a massive gamble um, and signed this contract in order to, to commit to this donation. And then they sort of said, well, look, it's not as simple as that. You have to make the installments um it, quite quickly so we need the first 60 grand within the first two weeks and then the, another 60 grand within a month and then the remainder prior to the event so I was like oh god so I just ended up you know taking taking this massive gamble and then everybody that sent me a lovely email the first night I phoned up and said look cards on the table we've booked Bill Clinton to be the speaker for next year would you buy a table and would you pay me for it really quickly and enough people kind of said, that's that's mental, yeah, definitely go for it. Obviously, my first call was to my dad, and I said, look, Dad, you know, can you buy a table, please, immediately? Um, you know, so enough people just said, yeah, uh, and kind of got behind it and, and bought tables and paid for it quickly, and we, we made it all happen. And, yeah, he ended up coming over in, I think, 2013. It's an, yeah, awesome story, awesome risk. I, I still can't quite get over that someone like Warren Buffett is charging five million for dinner but you could get bill clinton for 60k is 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 wild to me but um there we go maybe we should drop an email and and, and try and meet up up with him nick at some point or get him on the pod i don't know how much spare cash you've got but yeah i certainly don't have to dropping time, 60k sure. on a dinner <laughs> <laughs> but but just this, this leads us i guess that story leads us really nicely um into to, to social bite and this this coffee shop um that you opened as a an individual business initially but what became a, a chain across multiple cities um because the real making of social bite was through to to, to our, the best of our knowledge similar relationships or similar gumption to write to the likes of george clooney leonardo dicaprio heron uh helen harry and megan um the royals was really the making of that um, endeavor that you was the kind of next stop on your journey yeah i mean so obviously like I'll, we, I'll go on to tell some of the stories maybe of how some of these people came to visit the cafes and so on but yeah it started really from a million miles away from any of that um from really kind of humble origins um yeah we, we opened up this little cafe um myself and my colleague alice in the center of edinburgh on a street called Rose street um, and basically we got inspired about this idea um, to, to run a business and to be entrepreneurial but take away the sort of personal profit motive and replace it with kind of a social more altruistic motive which as I say kind of really rung a bell with me from, from kind of a sense of identity that I had from much a much younger age um, so we decided to open up this little cafe at the time uh, I had the events company in the centre of Edinburgh and we used to go and get a coffee most days from Starbucks or a sandwich from Pret-a-Manger so we're kind of customers in this market and we thought maybe if we could open something that competes with these kind of places but has a social mission then 
customers might buy into that and hopefully that might work. So we opened up this little cafe. We plowed every last penny we could into the shop fit um, to, to get the thing open. And yeah, we opened it up in August 2012. Um, and originally the concept was fairly one dimensional. We wanted to try and make a profit. And then we'd chosen three different charities to donate the profits to. Um, so it was a fairly one dimensional idea um, and it's become very well known now for our work with homeless people and um, but originally the idea didn't actually have anything to do with homelessness at all and um, so what happened was we just opened up the cafe we were in there for the first couple of weeks frantically trying to figure out how, how you run a cafe and we're making coffees and serving customers and so on and so forth and we met this young man who was 19 years old uh, called Pete um, who was homeless and he was selling the Big Issue magazine on the street corner and uh, just outside the front door of the cafe um, and after about two weeks of us being open Pete came into the shop and he plucked up the courage this day and he asked us if he could have a job and we sort of thought well you know why not the only reason we opened this was to try and do something good and that seemed like a nice thing to be able to do straight away and um, so we gave him a job in the kitchen basically as a, a dishwasher um, and remember we offered him a job for about 16 hours a week but he was so determined uh, to make it work and he was so motivated that he wanted to work for that 16 hours and then volunteer for another 16 hours and um, so when a full-time job came up it was just the obvious thing to do to offer that to Pete um, and we you know then another job came up and we thought let's try that again maybe because um, we saw that the employment was really transformative for him so we asked him Pete do you know anybody else that's homeless that might want a job and he said, well, my brother, uh, Joe, is also homeless. He also sells the big issue. So we said, okay, and we gave Joe a job. Um, and then Joe worked very hard. And another job opened up. Um, and we thought, well, let's try it again. And we asked them if they knew anybody else. And they said, well, there's a guy down the road called John. He might be quite good. So we gave John a job. And then they sort of it dawned on them. We were kind of soft touches. And they could maybe get some jobs for some of their other friends. And they said, there's another homeless guy called Colin, maybe you should give him a try. So almost by accident, in a way, before we'd even realised it, we were employing four or five people in this little cafe who had all come from uh, homeless backgrounds, and that really kind of got us very immersed in this issue, and it kind of all it went from there. And are you, um, I'm sure a lot of listeners, with, I mean, it sounds like all of the homeless people who came to work there um, were a kind of major success and, and obviously worked incredibly hard. Um, I'm sure that wasn't the case for everyone. Um, did you have any kind of issues with with people struggling with addiction or um, any other kind of mental health issue that, that actually you were trying to help, but just from a pure sort of, you know, commercial point of view, you had a difficult kind of ethical decision to make? Yeah, definitely. I mean, to be honest, we've had 101 million issues, um, you know, through employing people um you know as any employer does but particularly from people that are really excluded from uh you know employment and people from that kind of background you definitely have to be very very committed and sometimes very patient um you know like one of the first issues that sprung up was jo joe and pete the first two brothers um were both as i say working really really hard um after a few months um they started to come in to work and we noticed they were kind of smelling like they hadn't been showering 
Um, and, and we basically found out that their accommodation situation, which had basically been that they'd be reunited and they were staying back with their birth parents. They both grew up in the care system, um, but they got reunited with their birth parents on Facebook. So they were staying with their birth parents and that accommodation basically fell through um, and they were basically back homeless. So they were you know, sleeping in a mixture of homeless accommodations or sofa surfing or occasionally on the street. Um, and you know, so that kind of really pulled the rug from under their feet and we were kind of left with a challenge in the sense that they were both working really hard um, but obviously as a food business like hygiene is fundamental so it was almost impossible for them to continue working um, without their accommodation sorted um, so they ended up basically moving into my flat um, where I was living uh, at the time which was a one bedroom little flat and, and that lasted for much longer than it should have. So there was almost like no professional boundaries. Um, and, the, you know, the whole thing was very, very chaotic at, at first. As it grew a bit, we started to get a bit more resources we could invest to try and solve those kinds of problems without, uh, you know, having to go to, to su such an extreme situation. Um, and then, you know, we've had other issues that spring to mind with theft, um, you know, a, a few years into it. Uh, one of the guys we employed, um, called John, uh, we basically, little things kept going missing all the time. So uh, one day, £20 went missing from one of the tills, £10 went missing from another member of staff's wallet, uh, somebody's iPod went missing, and we kind of thought, someone must be stealing. And there was a few people we expected, um, but this guy, John, he was such a nice guy, he didn't even really come into the equation of our thinking at all. Um, but the coincidences kept stacking up and we kind of felt realistically it, it, it has to be John. Um, so one day I decided to try and go and force an admission from him um, and I went into our cafe in, in Shandwick Place in Edinburgh and asked him for a chat and we went and sat in one of the booths and I, I kind of basically, uh, even though we didn't have any evidence, I sort of made up a story and said, look John, something I've not told you, I've not told anybody is that we've had covert cameras put in the back of the shop um, and we've caught you on film stealing from us and stealing from your colleagues and I said if you admit it now then there won't be any consequences and we can support you um, but if you deny it now there'll be some really serious consequences. And uh, was that untrue about the cameras? Yeah it was yeah um, but I kind of felt you know I, I can force yeah. admission here um, and he looked me square in the eyes and he said um, show me the footage and I said <laughs> And he said, if you've got footage, show me. He said, because I promise you on my life, uh, I've not stolen from you. He said, you're giving me this chance. I said, he said, I would never betray that. He said, um, you know, he said, if you've got, show me the footage. So I thought, oh. so I went back to the office and said, it's definitely not John, 100%. Um, he didn't even flinch. You know, he swore in his life. It, it can't be him. Um, anyway, a couple of weeks went by and... We, we do lots of corporate catering of delivering sandwich platters to board meetings and that kind of thing. So this particular day, John was asked uh, to um, drop off this platter of sandwiches at this law firm. Um, and that was that. Uh, all fine. And then the next day, we were phoning around the different clients to make sure everything was okay with their food order. And we phoned this particular client and the receptionist said, yeah, the food was fine. But one small issue is that whoever's come in um, to drop it off the, the receptionist who was working yesterday her mobile phones went missing and um, so we think whoever's to uh, you drop the sandwich is still on her phone so I thought oh my that fucker <laughs> you know it was John so I sort of marched into the shop and said 
John let's go for a walk and we went and had a seat on a bench and uh, in Princess Street Gardens and I kind of said well, you took that woman's phone and you lied to me um, and at, at that point he sort of admitted it all and he got really upset and basically what came out then that we hadn't known before is that it's from since John uh, was in his early teenage years he developed a serious gambling addiction so everything he was taking was going straight into the uh, to Ladbrokes and straight into the roulette machines and the phone within 24 hours had already been pawned and the money had already been gambled um, so yeah like basically we're faced with a really difficult decision at that time because whilst you want to try and rehabilitate people um, that seemed like an almost impossible situation to repair because the trust was so broken not just with myself but with his colleagues um, but yeah we we effectively suspended him for three months and we helped him find a local gamblers anonymous group um, and I think it was around that time we realized that the job itself wasn't enough we had to reinforce it with support for these guys so we started to get a counselor that came in once a week and uh, John and everyone else started to really engage with, with the counseling um, and then after three months we repositioned him um, out in our central kitchen and he was actually one of the, the guys that ended up cooking lunch for George Clooney when he came to visit so it was kind of a, a really happy ending and then he, he went on to work for other mainstream businesses after us so that was a, a big lesson for me and all of our senior management and sometimes you just have to you know adopt a very different mindset and be much more patient than you otherwise uh, would yeah managing that balance between building a commercially successful business where a lot of that money will go to good causes anyway and then rehabilitating the the people you come across on the journey and employ must be incredibly difficult um do you mind telling us a bit about the the concept of paying it forward around the social bite business um, I'm sure you were thinking, you know, we're doing some good, we're employing these homeless people. Um, and then you started thinking about how you can build almost kind of a growth hack uh, model of, of spreading some positivity and joy. Um, how did that come about? Yeah, I mean, again, it was another very organic thing. We were, as I say, became more immersed in the issue. Um, and we decided maybe we could introduce a free food element. So we started to introduced this pay it forward system and when customers were coming in we started to encourage them to maybe pay something else forward so we said maybe you might like to buy an extra coffee or an extra sandwich or whatever you want um, for someone who's homeless to come and get something for free later and um, customers started to really engage with that and um, we used to get donations and the receipts used to go in a big jar um, by the tills and then we just wrote a handwritten sign on the window initially, and it said, you know, dear homeless people or something like that. Um, we are running this pay it forward system. You're welcome to come in for something for free um, that someone's bought in advance. So again, homeless people slowly started to come in and word spread. And again, almost before we'd even realized that we were feeding 40 or 50 people um, every day in, in the little cafe. Um, so yeah, by the time that kind of took off that that basically became the ethos and the model of social bite we decided that a quarter of the workforce at least would be people uh, that have come from a homeless background and the cafes would operate this food provision through the pay it forward system and uh, we started to basically expand the cafes on that basis and we ended up opening a small chain of five cafes uh, across three cities in scotland amazing um amazing concept and um yeah it's fascinating listening to 
yeah, the as Nick mentioned, the kind of balancing act of a, having a commercially viable business, but also doing good is, and the way you've handled it is is admirable and and, and fascinating. Um, the pay it forward concept that you, you you speak of, I, I know when we kind of connected offline um, to 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 figure out, um, yeah, a little bit more about the the journey you've been on. It it wasn't always plain sailing, uh, running it in the kind of initial construct that you had first envisaged by it being, I think you mentioned it as being a jar that was by the till where customers would come in and, and donate money for um, someone in need to come in and, and, and buy a product from from the cafe. Uh, I, I'm right in saying that it, it didn't fully fulfill the, the needs of the local community initially, did it? Yeah, I mean, uh, after a while, um, uh, when the word really spread around the homeless community and people were coming in fairly frequently, it, we were in a situation where the demand for the free food started to outstrip the supply of the donations, really. Um, so people, when they donated, the receipt for what they paid for would, would go in this big glass jar. But quite often those jars would run empty um, and we'd have to turn people away. We'd have to say, you know, maybe try back uh, later. There's nothing in the jar at the moment. Or you can maybe try one of the other cafes, um, but it was becoming quite a difficult situation. And the whole uh, balance, as you say, of trying to run this with this kind of social mission with a commercial reality where we had rent to pay and food suppliers to pay and rates to pay and staff to pay, um, you know, was undoubtedly um, a big challenge. And we typically lived very hand to mouth as a business. So we didn't have any additional resources just to kind of give the food out with the donations. Um, so that was sort of the situation we were in after, you know, the, probably the first uh, year, 18 months of possibly even up to two years of setting this thing up. Um, but yeah, I get, like all through my journey of entrepreneurship and, and doing this kind of thing, I've found amazing little miracles have happened along the way and incredible serendipitous things where it feels beyond my own wit and beyond my own capabilities um, but some kind of, uh, yeah, as it can only be described by me as a, a series of little miracles. Um, so the first big one that I can remember um, was that kind of helped us resolve this was we decided after a couple of years that we would open up the cafes on Christmas Day. Um, so we decided to do like a Christmas dinner service uh, thing for, for homeless people. The, tr the reason I actually decided to do that wasn't particularly altruistic. Um, a few years prior, I think my parents had split up, and um, so it was becoming a bit awkward every Christmas because my dad would want us to go around to his house, my mum would want us to go to hers, so it was a bit of a conundrum. So I kind of thought, you know what, I'm just going to take myself out of this family conundrum, and we'll open up the shops, and you know that'll be that. But we thought, given that finances were very tight, we should at least try and cover our costs for run running this Christmas service. So we. Uh, got in touch with this a friend of mine, a guy called Ollie Norman who runs a website called itison.com which is a little bit like Groupon they do daily deals so typically you might buy a nice hotel stay or a nice uh, dinner for two and you get a good deal for it um, so I asked Ollie if he would maybe run a deal on his website where someone could buy a homeless person a Christmas dinner for £5 um, and he said yeah absolutely how many would you like to sell to cover your costs? And so I said, well, you know, maybe if we could sell 800 at a fiver, then that could, um, th that would do it. 
So he said, well, what happens if we sell more than that? And I said, well, to be honest, the jars are running empty um, normally, so we could you know, maybe keep them topped up for a few weeks or a few months into the new year if we manage to sell more. So he said, great. So um, he launched this deal on his website a couple of weeks before Christmas, and we were all sat there watching with our fingers crossed, hoping we might sell the 800 uh, that we had targeted. Uh, and I ended up selling th those 800 in about 10 minutes, uh, and the deal ran for two weeks, and I ended up selling 36,000 uh, Christmas dinners uh, for five pounds. Um, so suddenly we'd raised all this money and that effectively kept those jars topped up throughout the course of the entirety of the following year. Um, and it really changed you know, the economics of our business model. So yeah, it was an, an amazing kind of thing that, as I say, can only be put down to, to the, a miracle, but also just the kindness of people. Like I've, I've kind of found that when you tilt the door open for people to demonstrate altruism and compassion, then that door tends to get slammed wide open and you're very often surprised. The thing I, the thing I keep seeing throughout your story is this kind of PR genius and PR understanding of how to come up with very interesting creative campaign and funding ideas um, that capture people's attention. But that idea, did you promote that in any way or was that you, that was kind of just pure kindness from human beings well, they have it is on have a database so they send out a daily email so normally that email would say you know you can stay at glen eagles hotel for a great price or you can go to all these lovely restaurants or get these christmas gift experiences or christmas or whatever it is you know okay. that, that those offers go out on a daily email so he sent out this email uh, that was just that wasn't offering any of that commercial stuff. It just said, um, "Buy a homeless person Christmas dinner." So that was the only marketing. And obviously, when that hit people's inboxes, it just kind of yeah blew us away. The people's kind of generosity, um, and, and that deals ran every year since then. And the most recent one, um, just last Christmas, I think sold one hundred and thirteen thousand. Um, dinners for five pounds so it's never let up it's got bigger and bigger every year and um, so yeah it's been one of the profound learnings i've had in my life is that i think human beings are fundamentally good and if you give people a way to express that altruism then they invariably do that's yeah. nice to hear really no really nice heartening thing to say I, I don't know if we've always got that from from guests on this show that humans are inherently good but they, they certainly appear to be in in this instance and that really is yeah uh, definitely a little miracle and it's great that it keeps on it's a miracle that keeps on giving um on the topic of small miracles um can you tell us a little bit about george clooney et al in scotland and visiting the the cafe yeah so, I mean, yeah, again, this was another like massive game-changing moment for us. Um, we, basically, it came about because we were organizing this event, the Scottish Business Awards. Um, so that was happening in tandem, really, with the cafes. So we're, and, and the Business Awards were basically the number one way that we funded the expansion of the cafes because we had all of these influential wealthy, successful business leaders together for this night annually. Um, and it gave me a platform to stand on the stage at that dinner and explain what we we're doing with this social enterprise and in, uh, encourage people to support that through the charity auctions and whatnot. Um, so that basically is how we raise the funding to open up new cafes and expand the whole thing. Um, so the two things were kind of running side by side. So, yeah, we had... The Bill Clinton event in 2013, 
and then we got Sir Richard Branson uh, to come. He came and was the speaker in 2014. So we had a bit of, of a track record of, um, you know, big name speakers. And we decided, oh, blew my neck, there's two birds have just flown into my house. <laughs> <laughs> Literally flying around above my head going mental. Do we, we probably need to take a pause, do we? Or can you? Can we carry on with the birds? Which <laughs> is highly distracting. This is the rural Scottish content we're after. <laughs> Nick, I'm you said... I'm a, a huge uh, Scottish hawk of some variety. Yeah. All right, they've got... They flew out, flew out all by themselves. Uh, sorry. <laughs> sorry about that. Um, so, yeah, so basically we were organising this, this big event um, and we'd had this track record of you know, attracting the, these big name speakers. And we were thinking about who we might be able to invite to be the keynote speaker at this event next. And the model we basically developed was we were able to make a, a donation uh, to a particular speaker's foundation or charity of choice um, because we were confident we were able to sell lots of tables and sponsorships for this dinner. Um, so, you know, the Clinton dinner attracted 1,600 people um, and then Richard Branson one w- was around the same. So, you know, it was a massive dinner, probably the, by far the biggest of its kind actually in the UK, including London events. Um, and it was generating a, a big revenue through the table sales. So we were able to, um, you know, think, okay, if we can find a speaker who's got a particular passion or affiliation with a particular charitable cause, we can invite them and offer a donation to their charity if they come and be the speaker. So we're researching speakers who had their own charities and so on and so forth. And we found that George Clooney co-founded a charity called Not On Our Watch, which he co-founded with various other Hollywood actors, um, which was all about human rights in the Sudan. Um, And so we basically uh, wrote off to this charity um, and inquired about whether it might be a possibility to, to bring George Clooney to Scotland to come and be the speaker at this dinner. And we said we'd be able to make a donation through through what was raised through the dinner and to, to that charity. And we obviously were able to have the credibility of saying we've had Bill Clinton and Richard Branson and Bob Geldof um, speak before. Um, so anyway, they started to engage with us and uh, it sounded like it was looking very positive that he would be up for coming um, to, to come and do this. So as we were in those conversations, um, you know, I kind of said, well, look, we also do this little thing called Social Bite. Um, it's a little social enterprise. You know, we've got a little cafe in the centre of Edinburgh. But you think, you know, whilst he's in town, he might pop into the cafe for 10, 15 minutes. Um, and they basically said yes. Um, so we, we got it all arranged and agreed and um, basically he'd agree, agreed to come to Scotland um, to speak at this dinner and to visit the Social Bike Cafe in November of 2015. Um, so basically when he arrived, obviously, you know, we'd uh, tipped off probably, um, but certainly they got wind of it, um, all of the me- media you could imagine. Um, so by the time he arrived, his first stop was to the Social Bike Cafe at... And, you know, it was like that scene from Notting Hill 
where the the guy steps out of his house, Spike steps out of his house, and it's just like hundreds of. It's like Dominic Cummings' house. (laughs) It's basically, but it was way way more than that. So it was kind of like hundreds, it seemed, of paparazzi, and there was this big Sky News truck parked around the corner, and there was literally people hanging out of windows taking photos. There was hundreds of. Uh, people, primarily women, that had been like camping out since six in the morning, that were like <laughs> literally made this massive line on the street, and um, so it was like an unbelievable scene. Um, and literally, I went into the um, news agents the next day, and it was the front page of every newspaper in the United Kingdom. Like I had cousins that live in South Africa that were phoning me up saying, "I've just seen you on the news of George Clooney." Um, and all this stuff so it was kind of like just literally um, was such a unique story of such a Hollywood megastar coming into this humble little cafe employing homeless people in Edinburgh that it just seemed to capture uh, the, the people's imaginations um, and, and he was brilliant he was absolutely um, charming like literally probably the most charming and funny and charismatic man um, I've ever met he was brilliant and he was super gracious with all of the, the homeless guys he met and took selfies with them all and uh, went above and beyond and he donated a thousand pounds to the pay it forward uh, you know contribution and stuff so um, yeah it was a a phenomenal experience and it gave us a great platform um, to build on to develop the charity and develop more ambitious ways of trying to tackle homelessness from there. Yeah it's it's amazing to see that 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 old uh, adage just rings so true that if you just don't ask you don't get I assume there are lots of um, lots of instances where they've said no as well, right? Um, not to be honest, not really, not really. Um, like almost the people that we approach, like we didn't. It's not like we sent off loads of letters. I think we just sent off one at a time, and then you know they 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 all engage. But again, as you each one comes, you got more credibility tax than S person. So again, as bonkers as it sounds, after we had the Clooney visit, we we thought we'd try. The same again, and we reached out to Leonardo DiCaprio's charity, um, and we, uh, you know, fresh off the George Clooney visit, and invited him, and um, he ended up coming literally exactly twelve months later, and he had lunch in our uh, restaurant, and again, it was totally surreal. Like you know, even though these it all kind of happened, and I sort of effectively tried to make it happen and engineer it when it actually did come round I just thought I can't believe literally felt like lightning striking twice um, and you know and I think all the media in Scotland and everybody was like what the hell's going on why are all these people flocking um, to this little social enterprise and yeah you know undoubtedly gave us an, an amazing platform to try and build on to to um go much, much further than what we had been doing to, to try and tackle the homeless issue and also campaign politically on the homeless issue. God, the people in the shops next to you must have been incredibly confused why every few months <laughs> someone like that popped in for, for tea. Yeah. Um, so I know we're, we're crunching through this, but the, the sort of um, the biggest event, I guess, that you have set up um, is actually the big sleep out. And so I want to keep a decent chunk of time to talk through that should we chronologically kind of segue into that and and how did that whole idea begin yeah um so basically like off the off the back of those these really high profile you know celebrity engagements and visits um we we decided to embark on some more ambitious uh 
projects to, 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 to tackle the homeless issue. And we were offering food, we were offering jobs, but ultimately if you want to try and do something you know, truly about homelessness, you, you have to look at the issue of a home or a house and, and a roof over people's heads. Um, and we'd learned quite a lot about um, the status quo and how that we re how we respond to homelessness typically in society. And you find that if people aren't on the streets, they're put in really terrible, squalid, dilapidated, homelessness-focused accommodations, which really kind of cuts them adrift from society and certainly doesn't serve to support them or help them onto a better path in life. Um, so we decided to embark on this project uh, around creating accommodation uh, and basically launched a project called the Social Bite Village, where we thought we might be able to build a small village, as crazy as it sounds, um, for people that were homeless to come in, find a, a nice home to live in and receive the support they might need um, in a, a supported community before moving on to get their own place. So we basically approached Edinburgh Council and we set, you know, explained the aspiration to develop this project and we asked them if they had any vacant land that we might be able to take on to build build this uh, village. So again, it was hot off the heels of the George Clooney and DiCaprio visits, so we had a lot of clout really in the city. Um, so again, without those visits, would the council have took the meetings and would they have been so willing to accommodate the request? I don't believe they would. So you know, immediately we were seeing the power of some, that, that newfound profile. Um, and the council basically agreed to give us this plot of land um, in the north of the city. Uh, just a beautiful little spot almost on the on the waterfront um, in Edinburgh and we basically needed to raise some money in order to put into production these houses we were looking at developing prefabricated homes that we built in a factory and then basically craned onto site so we, we, ha we had to raise at least a million pounds realistically uh, to, to make this happen um, so we were thinking about ways we might do that, and through the Business Awards event, we developed a really strong network within the business community um, with, with lots of top chief executives and business leaders. So I decided maybe we could do the, an event where we would encourage these people to come and sleep out on a really cold uh, Scottish winter's night and, and encourage them to raise money. So we called this event the CEO Sleepout, and... We took on a very small square in Edinburgh called Charlotte Square and I wrote off to all of the top business leaders and invited them to come and sleep out together on this night and we ended up with 270 people um, from the Scottish business community. Nicola Sturgeon, the First Minister, came and like served uh, breakfast rolls and that kind of thing and those 270 people all fundraised and obviously as business leaders they tend to have more affluent networks. Um, and they managed to raise over half a million pounds uh, between them. So that kind of gave us the cash we needed to, to get the village project up and running. Um, and that project ended up launching uh, in May 2018, so just about two years ago. It's almost exactly two years old now. Um, and, yeah, it's been a fantastic project. I'm super, super proud of it. There's about 20 uh, homeless people that live there at any one time, and, um, many have now moved on through the project into their own places and it's a beautiful, uh, really supportive environment and it's something we're keen to try and uh, t take elsewhere after now having that two years under our belt. Um, but through the, the course of that and doing the CEO sleep out, we realised that was a really 
powerful fundraising mechanic. And you know, I thought maybe we could develop that um, to, to, to set a much more ambitious fundraising target um, and also bring in a strong element of political campaigning to it if we could make it more mass participation. Um, so the following year, which was 2017, um, we uh, decided to, to evolve the event and we called it Sleep in the Park and decided to try and reach out to many people from all walks of life to come and do, do this en masse. Um, so the, we booked out the city centre park in Edinburgh, which was called Prince's Street Gardens. And we had an aspiration to get many thousands of people to come and sleep out en masse. Um, so we wrote off to the businesses again and this time encouraged them to bring their employees. But we also went to the churches and the mosques and the universities and the high schools. Um, and we ended up having 8,000 people uh, came on, on a December night. Turned out to be the coldest night of the entire year, actually. It dropped to about minus six. Um, and yeah, and they, they collectively raised around four million pounds. And, um, you know, it was a staggering kind of sum of money, but also really focused the political spotlight on the issue. And that was sort of the origins of us taking that sleep out and, and, and taking that further afield. Where did um w- was the aim of this four million from the sleep in the park to to also go into a similar um housing project um or was it distributed across different charities where where, where did the money go of that particular project um it basically allowed us to develop this um a, another housing project but as a slightly different model to the village one which is more community focused where we actually built the houses and people kind of live. In a, in a more communal environment, um, the, we developed a project using that money that was raised um, called Housing First, which is basically is based on a very successful model for tackling homelessness, which is particularly prevalent in Scandinavia. Um, Finland is actually very often cited um, uh, for their use of this kind of policy. And basically what, what it is is that what it suggests is that if someone is, finds themselves becoming homeless, then the way we currently deal with that as a society is we ask them to, to make sure that they can get on top of any challenges they may face. And we treat giving them a house or a home as sort of the final point of intervention. So we're sort of saying, well, you really need to make sure that you're what's known as tenancy ready and you need to show us that you're on top of any mental health issues or on top of any addiction issues, um, or you might be able to get a job, and if you can show us all these different things, then you'll be tenancy ready and you can get a house. Whereas common sense would tell you that if you are uh, homeless and you're either on the street, um, sleeping in a doorway or an alleyway, and especially in freezing cold conditions, or if you're living in homeless hostels with you know, 50 other homeless people or really horrible homeless accommodation, then your ability to get on top of mental health issues or addiction issues or you know, feel ready to get a job is really, really going on a very negative downhill spiral. So we're kind of asking people to show themselves to be up high um, when we're sending them, making them live in a situation which is setting them really down low. So what Housing First suggests is that we should turn that whole system on its head and if someone finds themselves becoming homeless, then the first point of intervention uh, should be a home, not the last one. Um, so basically we worked with uh, landlords, largely big housing associations, to open up mainstream, typically one-bedroom flats uh, in the cities and uh, uh, the, the large cities in Scotland 
and we ended up getting 830 mainstream flats pledged to this particular program uh, for the most extreme kind of chronic rough sleepers and people that live on the streets in Scotland to get their own place and this is a place that's theirs forever if, if they sustain it but it's a permanent flat and where the, the four million we went primarily was invested in um, was a wraparound support for people and um, so that alongside the keys to the tenancy they also got all the support they might need to sustain it and um, so yeah that's been another major major project that we've developed um, off the back of, of these big fundraising initiatives. And on the on the world's big sleep out project, obviously we've heard the kind of the flow from CEO sleep out to sleep in the park to eventually the world's big sleep out, um, where you eventually raised over ten million dollars and over sixty thousand people took part in that. Um, and it's it's something that I think all of us were kind of conscious of, uh, whether we took part or not. There was so much talk and so much press around it. Um, what was the process of closing down the likes of Trafalgar Square, Times Square, um, you know, even places like the Philippines at such a, a huge scale on, at the same time. What was that process like? Yeah, I mean, it was a bonk. So this was last year and it was totally bonkers, really. Um, but, you know, basically, I've sort of explained each of the different steps of, of this my kind of journey. And, you know, each time really I've envisaged something and visualized it really clearly and um, whether that was bringing George Clooney over or the sleep in the park thing or whatever it might have been I've always visualized something really clearly and really believed it could happen and then worked really really hard every single day taking little steps to make it happen and it's always kind of come true that idea in, in my head has always manifested itself into reality so I suppose you know as you get more ambitious with that and you keep pushing the envelope a bit further you get a bit more confident and um, so I suppose you know kind of from the success of the sleep in the park events decided that maybe uh, on a one-off basis we could try and launch that a similar concept but do it on more of a global stage and um, so in my mind it was you know a bit of a live aid kind of moment potentially uh, for the homelessness issue Bob Geldof has played a big part in this journey. Exactly right. Um, you know, so I felt like that was could, could be what what we kind of thing we could create for the homelessness cause. So, yeah, we just just created this event called the World's Big Sleep Out, and we decided that we would try and put it on in many cities throughout the world. So we had a target of fifty cities throughout the world, um, and. In order to do that, we wanted to get a couple of really iconic locations, uh, you know, to, to be the flagships and the focal points of this. So we decided to try and find a really iconic location in London and a really iconic location in, in New York um, to be the flagship points of it. So again, uh, similar to really to the Bill Clinton story, I didn't have any connections at all in New York. I didn't have too many in London either, but certainly not really anyone in, in New York. Um, so I uh, was sat in my flat in Edinburgh and I went on Google and Googled um, New York parks, you know, permits and uh, found a phone number for the New York City Parks Permitting Department. So basically cold, cold, cold New York City parks uh, and got through to someone involved in permitting. And I explained what we'd done in Scotland and we'd raised millions of pounds um, and we were looking to do a big mass participation sleep out in New York. Um, and I, you know, I asked them what would be the process 
for getting a permit. And I remember the guy said to me on the phone, he said, look, that'll be completely impossible uh, to do that in New York. He said, you know, there's no precedent here for overnight events. He said, we have cur curfews where all events have to be closed down by 10 p.m. And there's no precedent for overnight events. He said, the NYPD will never sign that off. And he said, we would never grant a permit for anything like that. He said, it's just not the city to do it. And he said, just tr you might as well just try another city. So I was like, oh, God, it felt like the dream was kind of over before it really began. Um, but I kind of felt, um, you know, let's keep sort of knocking the, on the door a bit. Um, so I decided to go fly out to New York for a, a few days. Um, so a, a month or so later, I think I, I ended up going out. And there's this network in Scotland called the Global Scots Network, um, where people with some kind of Scottish heritage have uh, that live elsewhere in the world so say maybe it's people that are from scotland but more often than not it was someone who's maybe great grand was scottish and has got a strong affinity with scotland in some way like a certain certain donald trump yeah might be i think he was actually a member of this network to be honest i'm <laughs> sure no long i'm sure no he's been disavowed now i'm sure um sure. but anyway so i got in touch with this um network and said look i'm going out to new york i'm trying to pull this thing together, is there anyone you could introduce me to? And so they said, said, yeah, so they made lots of email introductions and ended up setting a range of really random speculative meetings in New York. So uh, I, I arrived and I was bombing around Manhattan, uh, going to these different meetings, and I ended up meeting this one guy uh, who was a bit of a, a property developer in New York. And He's, I, sh I was showing everyone this video from the event we'd done in Edinburgh of the Sleep in the Park event and I was explaining obviously that we wanted to try and find a venue in New York and the guy said oh this is quite interesting he said you should meet my friend Bruce and um, so I said okay and um, so he got in touch with this friend of his uh, and he set up a meeting for me with this guy Bruce the next day and I didn't really know who Bruce was he didn't give me too many details but I went and met this guy and again I showed him this video and talked him through what we wanted to do and he was a really kind of aggressive energetic New Yorker and he was like Josh you know this is great um, and he and he basically <laughs> yeah, <quite> well. <laughs> and basically this guy turned out to be the former chief of staff uh, to Mayor Rudy Giuliani um, so he was quite well connected politically um, and he's like Josh this is because I'm going to phone someone in City Hall right now so he picks up his phone in the meeting and he says look you've got to give this guy 10 minutes tomorrow about this homeless thing and um, so he says right you've got a meeting tomorrow in City Hall so the next day I go into City Hall um, and I meet these various people um, and again I show them all this video and that's when they first started to say, like, it would be pretty difficult to do this in New York but you know I don't know maybe a venue that could work uh, maybe Times Square. So like, right, yeah. So if we get a small miracle, exactly right. So I thought, wow. So anyway, we kind of jumped on that, and I, I went back and forth to New York a few times and set up lots of follow-up meetings, and uh, met the NYPD and met the permitting people in the mayor's office and and everything else. And yeah, to my amazement, really, um, New York ended up uh, green lighting us to close down the entire stretch of Times Square. Um, and yeah, from there we were really up and running. And from that we went to Sadiq Khan's office in London and said, "Look, um, we're, this is what we're aiming to do. We've got Times Square. Uh, could you find a venue for us in London?" And you know, with them knowing that we had Times Square, they very quickly said, "Yeah, we'll give you Trafalgar Square." Um, and then we we were off to the races. It's an incredible story, an incredible journey. It sounds like it's a 
as as always seems to be the case in life and with entrepreneurs, it's a combination of insanely good luck and hard work. And um, in your instance, it's amazing to see like the graft and then the luck that's come as a result of it. Um, from your perspective, does it swing more in one way or the other in terms of luck or hard worth? I mean, you keep referring to these as mini miracles. Um, it seems like it could have only really ever happened to, to you in your circumstance. Yeah, I think, you know, it's a funny thing. I feel like um, luck's probably the wrong word. Like when I first, uh, you know, started all this, I, I remember I was very atheistic in my worldview. I wasn't particularly spiritual. Um, and, you know, now at this point, I'm, I'm very, very spiritual in the sense that I kind of feel like, I, you know, I'm not saying it's a God uh, necessarily, but I, I feel like for any of us in life, if we manage to try and align what we're doing um, with a, a, a sense of what we feel is our purpose um, and we work really hard and we really commit uh, to, the, to, to that idea or that pursuit, then you know, serendipity and all manner of things kind of fall in your path and doors swing open to you that you could have never dreamed of or envisaged possible. So I feel like there is there is some kind of spiritual thing at play and I, I don't know how to explain it, um, but I, I feel like it's way beyond my own ability or my, beyond my own hard work or beyond my own wit um, and things kind of came into my path throughout this whole journey that kind of kept the whole thing rolling and, and opened these doors that otherwise would have seemed impossible. So maybe it's just all been phenomenal luck, but I, I really feel that, you know, it's not just, this isn't just the case for me. I think for any human being on earth, I think if uh, we, we kind of commit to something um, and, and work really hard on it, then things fall our way that we couldn't have anticipated, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I think that's a, a really nice take on it. And no offense caused by saying, you've just been lucky. Yeah, it's it's either luck or it's divine intervention, but it's it's one. But I think, from yeah, my perspective, it even you know, it feels like once you saw something in the way of you achieving what you wanted to achieve, you went and tried three or four other things, like even identifying that organisation of people with Scottish heritage, and then going and having exactly. a load of meetings that could have been pointless that led to meeting that big, loud American gent. Um, it doesn't feel lucky to me, really. It feels like you it's had graft. the foresight and the graft. To an extent, but even like, I don't know, it's like Times Square. It's, you know, it's just like so far-fetched. Even now, looking back insane. on it, you know, from the perspective of sat in lockdown, it just seems so mental that it even happened yeah. and, and happened in such a short space of time. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I do, I do feel that there is something beyond... Uh, each of us that kind of that, that conspires to, to help make crazy things happen sometimes yeah certainly is a, a far cry from from sterling and having a couple of birds in your kitchen um isn't it but, <laughs> if we um, edit that bit I, of the pot out that sentence is going to sound extremely weird no I've, I've specifically said it so we don't edit out the pod <laughs> and it stays in but um i'm just noticing that we're, we're kind of um coming up to time and we we, we probably want to wrap and and let you enjoy your evening um josh but I, I don't think we can really leave you without our asking a little bit about um your mbe and um yeah i i guess about the the more controversial aspects of it because um yeah both nick and i know that you know the a lot of people didn't take too kindly or fondly to you getting your MBE? Well, I mean, it, it, that, so I, I got a letter in the post, I think, um, offering, you know, an MBE a, a couple of years ago. Um, so, you know, I'm not particularly 
a royalist or anything like that, but obviously it's very flattering to be offered. But it definitely was something I had to think about and consider because, you know, as I have been, had been doing and the reason I was obviously offered it, um, I've been working with homeless people very intensively um, in, in Scotland. And homeless people, I suppose, are kind of as much of a symbol of individuals that have been really downtrodden by society and really excluded from the system and the status quo has really not served these individuals at all and you know I was working every day to try and uh, improve that situation and try and proactively bring them in to society through employment and housing and, and all kinds uh, and I suppose the royal family you know it really is very symbolic of the, the establishment and the status quo um, so it was definitely a consideration as to whether to accept it or not. Um, but, you know, in fact, there was a couple of key things. Like, number one was I phoned my mum, and she said, of course you accept, I will absolutely kill you if you don't. <laughs> um, you know, and she had the, the fantastic kind of day out. So that was number one, not to be killed by my mum. And, <laughs> you know, number two, you know, I feel like um, it, it's, it's made a big difference in my life in terms of opening doors, you know, w- whether it was... Uh, ambitious projects like the Social Bite Village or whether it was trying to get Times Square or go to go to New York and persuade people to support us and get involved. I think, you know, th- these things help and they help open doors. Um, so that was, you know, uh, definitely been something that's been really, really positive from it. Um, I think certainly at the time when I accepted it, there was a bit of a Twitter um, storm of people in Scotland primarily saying that that was a bad decision. And I can definitely understand um that critique you know and respect that critique but again nothing in life is black and white and you know it's a, it's a nuanced thing and I just felt on balance it was the right thing to do so um you know and, and as I say my mum had a good day out so that was the main thing yeah however it's perceived it's an amazing achievement um unfortunately I think we've run out of time so thanks so much for coming on Josh amazing story and good luck with the homeless housing initiative and world's big sleep out next year if we're able to do one me and Will will definitely be taking part. Um, Fingers crossed. And thanks to all our listeners for tuning in. Um, We will be back next week with another interview. Thanks, guys. Thanks, everyone. I'm serious. Move to a new city. We're moving to New York. I should probably buy a place in the city first. Are you here for business or pleasure? Hopefully both.